Hey, what's up, New Hope Church? I am so glad that you are in the house of God today. And by the time this day is over, you are going to be glad that you are in the house of God today because you get to hear from one of my friends and what I truly believe is one of the best communicators in the country today. He is no stranger to New Hope. He has preached here before and it was one of the most powerful messages I heard all last year. I am talking about Pastor Michael Kelsey. I call him Mike, uh, but you call him Pastor Mike, Pastor Michael, whatever the case may be. But you are in for a treat today. Let me tell you a little bit about Pastor Mike. He's married to Ashley, 10 years in October. They have three kids, Ava, seven years old, Michael, three, and Jackson, one. Oh my Lord, this is a man who has his hands full with young, beautiful children. He is a Bible teacher at McLean Bible Church. He's also the campus pastor at the Montgomery County campus. He grew up in Washington, D.C. I know this just from our friendship. He comes from a long line of anointed pastors and preachers of the gospel. And I'm just so grateful that he's become a friend of New Hope Church. And I'm so grateful you get to hear from him today. And I'm hoping and praying Pastor Michael will come back and be with us once a year until Jesus comes back. And if you agree with that in just a moment, I want you to show some love and honor where honor is due. I want you to give it up like you always do for the man of God in the house of God ready to preach to you today the word of God. Welcome, Michael Kelsey. Come on, church. New hope, new hope. What's up? I guess I have to come back every year because he just put me on blast in front of everybody. Well, it's good to be here with you to those out of the campuses. It's great. Uh, to be here, uh, able to share God's word uh, with you. I'm excited to be able to be here. If you're new to the church, we are in a series called Hot and Heavy, and it will be hot and heavy today because we are talking about a sensitive uh, but a very necessary subject. We're going to be talking about sex uh, today. So last week, Pastor Benji gave you this heads up. I'm going to give it to you again. If you have kids here or at one of the campuses and you are not quite ready to have that talk with them, then this would be a great time for you to let them go uh, to kids ministry and be able to hang out there. Before we dig in, though, um, I do want to say one of the consequences of being from and growing up in the Northeast is that you're just really skeptical, skeptical of people who are nice. And so just since I got here to Durham, I'm walking down to people, I'm like, dog, why are, you, why are you asking me how my day is going, dog? Like, what are you, you trying to rob me? Like, what do you want from me? I'm not used to y'all. Y'all are so sweet and nice. Uh, and I know you have ulterior motive, uh, but uh, no, thank you so much uh, for your Southern hospitality. Uh, it's a joy uh, to be able to be here. I want to read something for you as we get started here. And I want you to listen carefully uh, as, I, as I read this. It says, how beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. Don't get nervous. <laughs> I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples. 
and your mouth like the best wine. That was the guy. She responds now, may the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. Y'all, that's the Bible. That is Song of Solomon chapter 7. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in church. And I nobody ever read this. Nobody taught this passage. My dad was a pastor. He didn't break that open at Thanksgiving dinner. Like we didn't, we didn't dive into this particular section of scripture, but it describes this profound and and satisfying and beautiful sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And I start by reading that because I want us to be reminded as we talk about this topic that God designed this thing. God designs sex. And it's good. It's good. But like my friend, I, I heard him give this analogy and I thought it was so helpful. A friend of mine uh, who's a pastor and he's from uh, that country known as Texas and, uh, and so uh, Texas, they just do a lot of things different uh, there. And he was just telling me that everybody in Texas, you just grow up, everybody has guns. You know what I mean? They're not drug dealers. They're not whatever. They just have guns for no reason. And, uh, and so uh, he was just describing how his father had guns in the house and, um, and, and kept them locked up in this kind of gun cabinet or whatever. And so his father would say, listen, son, those guns are powerful and they're locked up in this cabinet and you're not old enough, like they're, they're not for you yet. And so his dad would kind of leave and go to work and his friends would come over and what would he do? He would go to the gun cabinet, he figured out how to open it and he remembers the first time he took the gun out the cabinet and it was just amazing just feeling the gun, this powerful thing in his hand and then he would hurry up and put it back kind of neatly so his dad would notice and then the next week his friend would come over and he would do the same thing and take the gun out and this time he found the bullets and he would put the bullets in the gun but then he was too afraid to shoot it and so he would put it back and then the next go around he would do the same thing and then this time his friends would take the gun outside and they would shoot the gun. It was just this powerful feeling of being able to do uh, this thing and he, he said in this kind of illustration, he was just saying, listen, when you just lock that away and, and, and just say, this is powerful, there's a mystery that that creates and a curiosity that creates. And he says, listen, so the best advice that, that he was given for his kids is if you have a gun, right? And this isn't a statement about gun ownership or not. It's just an illustration. Follow me. He just says, listen, if you have a gun, he says, and your kid is curious and asks a question, the first thing you should do is you take that gun out while they're there and you show them this is how it works. It's powerful. It's powerful, and you remove the mystery from it, and you be the one to teach them how powerful it is. And I think that's such a powerful illustration because here's what we've done in the church. If you grew up in church, you, you know, and you may not have grown up in church. Let me in on a little secret. We in the church, we don't like to talk about sex. And what we do with sex in the church is we take it and we tell everybody this thing is amazing and it's powerful. You can't handle it. And so we lock it away in this little taboo cabinet. And what we do in the church is we either avoid talking about it altogether or the only thing we say about it is what? Don't do it. All we say is don't do it. And if you're a dude like me, don't do it means... This must be something I want to do, right? <laughs> and so it just, it becomes this mystery and it, it evokes all of this 
curiosity and we just kind of send our kids, right, out into this sex-saturated world and we just kind of hope it'll all work itself out. And my question is, how's that going for us? Like, how has that been going for us when we, when we send out of our churches people with, without a biblical perspective on sex and sexuality, there's all of these competing ideas that come for us. I was in Uganda last week and we were driving down the street and there was a big billboard and on the billboard was a little girl and the sign said, my friends advised me to take an aspirin before sex. Now I'm pregnant. It's a kind of widespread thing in that part of Uganda, right, where they, this, this misconception, this myth was spreading that aspirin somehow was a contraceptive. And it just made me think, like that seems so absurd when I looked at it on the billboard. But as I came back into the States, I thought, how many misconceptions have shaped the way we view sex? Like what lies and what myths have we believed? Have we allowed ourselves to believe some stuff that just isn't true and it's just not Accurate, And so I believe God wants to speak to us through his word about this topic of sex. And so here in all of our campuses, why don't you stand with me just real quick. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to read verses 12 through 20. And then I just want us to unpack it and just pull two points that I think are very relevant to you and very relevant to me. And so let me read. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he writes this, this letter to a group of believers, he says this in verse 12. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one, one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is God's word. You can be seated. You can be seated. Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a group of believers in a city called Corinth, an ancient city called Corinth. I won't give you all the history in the background except to say this, that Corinth was a sex-saturated society just like ours is uh, here in the United uh, States. And in fact, and you can kind of pick up on this language here in the passage, they had a temple in Corinth. It was the temple of Aphrodite. And in that temple, there would be a thousand or so prostitutes there and many people from the city would come and have sex with these prostitutes as a form of worship. 
And so sexual promiscuity was rampant and common and accepted in the city of Corinth. And that kind of mentality, those kinds of habits were beginning to bleed into the church. And so the apostle Paul is speaking into that kind of sex-saturated culture. And the main point of this passage is in verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Now, I got to define sexual immorality for us because many of us, we kind of play this game, right? When we, when we talk about this topic, especially, right, young people, we, we, want, we want to say, well, how close can I get, right, before it's immorality, before it's sin? Or this, isn't, this can't be sin for us because we love each other. Or fill in the blank, right? So I gotta, let's define sexual immorality biblically. In the original language, the Greek language, the word translated sexual immorality is porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. But in scripture, sexual immorality is broader than just uh, what we would consider pornography. In the Bible, porneia is a catch-all term that includes all kinds of sexual sin. And so you see porneia translated and applied in a lot of different ways as it relates to premarital sex. Adultery, that's sex outside of your marriage, as it relates to gay sex, prostitution, incest, sexual abuse. So porneia is is this catch-all term for all these different kinds of sexual sin. And so basically when it says sexual immorality here or porneia, and you can write this down if you're taking notes, what that means is this. Any sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. That's not my definition. That's literally what the definition is in Scripture. You study the New Testament. All it is is any sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. And one of the things we've done in the church is we've created this hierarchy, right, of sexual sin. And in Scripture, sexual immorality includes any kind of sexual activity that's outside of his design for marriage. And so two things I want to point out from this text two reasons why we should flee from sexual immorality and specifically why we should flee from any kind of sexuality that's outside of God's design. Here's number one, because God designed your body for a purpose. God designed your body for a purpose. Your body is not just random. It didn't just happen because of some impersonal process. God designed your body and my body for a purpose. You see, the people in Corinth, they had all of these mantras, right? These, these popular one-liners that they used to justify their sinful habits. And we in our culture, we got our own kind of version of this, our own one-liners. We say stuff like YOLO, right? Well, we don't really say it anymore. It's kind of, that's kind of faded, you know what I'm saying? But, but YOLO, right? Like, you only live once. And why do we say that? We say, you only live once. So you know what that means? I only live once, so I got to get it in now. Satisfy yourself in as many ways as you possibly can because you only live once. Corinth had those kinds of slogans. And so what Paul does is he quotes their slogans and then he responds to them. Verse 12, he says, you say, I have the right to do anything. Now, if you grew up in church, you'll probably remember how the older translators, uh, translations put it. It says, all things are lawful. 
And this was a popular saying in Corinth. It basically meant I'm free to do anything I want. I'm free to do anything I want. And Paul's biggest concern wasn't that this was a popular saying in the culture. His biggest concern was that this was becoming a popular saying in the church. In fact, they were taking what Paul had taught them about the gospel of grace and the freedom that comes from grace. And they were twisting it. They were twisting it to justify their sin. They were saying, we're, we're new covenant Christians now. We're new covenant Christians. We're free from those old oppressive Old Testament laws. We've been saved by grace. We are free to do whatever we want. And Paul says, wait a minute. He says, slow your roll for just a second because before we even get to sexual sin in particular, let me clarify something in general. He says, if that's how you think, then you don't understand true freedom. You don't understand true freedom. You say, I have the right to do anything with my body. But Paul responds, but not everything is beneficial. He says, you say I have the right to do anything. Paul responds, but I will not allow myself to be mastered by anything. I'm not going to use my freedom as an opportunity to become enslaved to something that God doesn't want me to be enslaved to. And so they think they can do whatever they want with their bodies. And verse 13 shows why they thought they could do anything they wanted with their bodies. Verse 13, he picks up another slogan from them. He says, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. You know what they're saying right here? Basically what they're saying is sex is a, just a normal physical function, just like eating. This is a normal physical function. When I'm hungry, I eat food. When I'm horny, I have sex. It's that simple. It's, it's, it's that simple. They're saying sex is not a moral issue. It's just a physical activity. And Pastor Benji talked about appetites last week. If you were here last week, you heard that message. I listened to the message. He talked about appetites. And the Corinthians are basically saying this. They're saying my appetites are my authority. My appetites are my authority. My desires dictate the way I live. My desires are more authoritative than God's design, than God's word. That's essentially what they're saying here. You see, so often we believe the lie that to be free is to have no restrictions. We believe that lie. In our culture, and some of us feel this way, it feels almost oppressive to tell somebody, you have these desires, restrain yourself from them. You have these desires that are so strong, that feel so natural, but those desires might, might be wrong. It feels almost oppressive. It, it, it feels insane, actually, to, to say, restrain yourself from indulging in desires that feel so natural to you. If we, we, we believe the lie that to be free means to have no restrictions, but we know intuitively that that's not true. We know that's not true, because think about this for, for just a second. Uh, I am not very disciplined uh, with, my, uh, with, how I take, with my health and how I take care of my body. I know you can't tell, but just trust me, okay? I'm just not very disciplined with how I take care of, of my body. I use my freedom to eat what I want, do what I want, whatever. But I decided a little while ago that I was going to try to get back in shape. And so I went and, and, and was like, I'm going to do this little trial kind of CrossFit workout, right? A friend of mine owns a gym and she was like, hey, you can come and you can do a trial day just for free. Just come check it out. And so I go, right? And I show up. And to be honest with you, at first, I'm killing it. I'm, I'm killing it out here. Now, let me be honest. It wasn't actually CrossFit. It, I call it like CrossFit for dads. It was like 
a bunch of like middle-aged fathers and me, all right? But I felt like I was killing the game, right? And so, so I go there, man, and they do this upper body like workout where it's like mu to muscular failure. So you do light weights, but you just do it until you can't do it anymore. So we did some upper body stuff, and then the trainer had me do some push-ups. And y'all, I got to like 2.7 push-ups. <laughs> and my body started involuntarily shaking, dog. Like, like when your car, something's wrong with the engine or like you get a flat tire, my body was just like shaking uncontrollably and I couldn't even do it. And I, I didn't know that was just a warm-up though. It's the warm-up, because today was leg day. It was leg day. And so they had me out there. I'm doing squats, y'all. I'm doing leg presses. I ran 10 flights of steps with a weighted vest. And then after all of that, I did lunges with weights. And I'm doing these lunges, y'all, and I start feeling like something isn't, something isn't right. It's something doesn't feel right. And, uh, y'all, I, pa I passed out. I, no, 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 like I really mean, like I passed out, like laid out in the middle of the gym. All I know is I woke up and it's dudes all around me trying to give me juice boxes like I'm six years old, right? I'm out just on the floor drinking Welch's, like passed out. Now I want you to contrast that with a professional athlete or a professional dancer. See, they use their freedom very differently. They live a very, what we might say, a very restrictive life. While everybody else is eating what they want, they discipline themselves to eat what's healthy. While everybody else is sleeping in, they're up early in the morning, hitting the gym. They're practicing. And so from the outside looking in, you might look at their life and say, that's not freedom. Their life is so restricted. Well, let me ask you this. Look at that professional athlete on the field. Look at that professional dancer on the stage. Look at how agile their body is. Look at how strong their body is. Look at how much control and grace they have in their movements. You watch an athlete on the field or the court. You watch a dancer on stage. You're looking at freedom, true freedom on display. True freedom on display. Who's, who's, who's the person that's really free? The, the, the athlete or the dancer or me laid on the floor with a juice box? <laughs> Who's really free? And here's the point that I want you to get, and this is so critical for you to understand, that Christian freedom isn't freedom to do whatever we want, however we want. Christian freedom is freedom to become who God has designed us to be. Christian freedom. It's freedom. It's the ability for us to become all that God has designed us to be. And you say, well, what does God design us to be? Well, God designed our bodies with divine purpose. Verse 13 here, it says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. You know what? You're free. You can do that if you want. But, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality. It has a divine purpose. Its purpose is what? For the Lord. It's for the Lord. God designed your body for a purpose, to be an instrument for his glory. And I mean that literally. If you take some pieces of wood and a string, what, what looks like pieces of wood and string for some people, and you put that in the hands of a professional musician, amazing things happen. And God says, that's exactly what I want for your life. God wants us to give him control of our bodies so that he can use them for his divine purposes. 
And God is our creator, but even more profound. If you've been born again, look at verse 15. It says, your bodies are, mem you're, are members of Christ. You've been born again through faith in Jesus. It says, you've been united with Jesus. You have this, this eternal, intimate relationship with Jesus. In verse 19, he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You belong to God. Your body belongs to God. And our bodies are designed to honor him and to put his greatness on display. But if we're honest, sometimes that kind of talk, it makes us anxious. There's some of you here and watching who, who feel anxious when you think about giving God control of your body and what you do with your body. You know why you get anxious? You, you get anxious because all of us, we are afraid that giving God control means giving up joy. We're afraid if I give God control in this area of my life, this particular sexual sin or sexual habit, the thing that I haven't really told anybody about or the thing that I embrace so tightly, if I give that up to God, then I'm giving up my joy. And I want to be sensitive because I understand, trust me, from my own life and from counseling so many people, I know that when you have sexual addiction or sexual sin or sexual desires, right, that, that are so, so intertwined with who you are, it's not a light, casual thing, like a joking thing to talk about giving that up to God. I understand that. But if that's you, then the next six words Paul says could absolutely change your life. It could change your life because Paul says not only is our body meant for the Lord, but look at what he says. He says these six words, and the Lord for the body. And the Lord for the body, you say, what in the world does that mean? What it means is that God cares about your body and he cares about satisfying your body. God is not trying to restrain you from pleasure. God is trying to redirect you to true pleasure that can only be found in him. That can only be found in him. And so you think about it. Think about it. How do you experience pleasure? through the body that God created and that he gave to you. <clears throat> he gave you eyes and designed them for you to be able to see beauty. He gave you taste buds. You know, the average person has about 10,000 taste buds that renew themselves every two years. God designed that. We don't deserve anything good from God in our sin. He could have said, I'm going to sustain them on some like tasteless paste. And we get dry rub ribs. <laughs> we get grits. We get fried chicken. These are, notice, all unhealthy foods. We get kale. <laughs> we get veggie sticks. <clears throat> like God created our taste buds that have one purpose, to taste flavors. Like God is not trying to restrain our joy, but redirect our joy. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And here's the amazing thing. God isn't just trying to satisfy and delight us in this life with our body. Look at verse 14. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. If you are in Christ, listen to me very carefully. Listen to me, every good pleasure that you enjoy in this life, it is only a commercial for the eternal pleasure and satisfaction that God has prepared for you. 
He's going to raise our bodies. And he has devoted himself to satisfying us for all of eternity. And listen, I'm spending so much time here because you got to get this deep down in your heart if you're going to fight against sexual sin. You have to know deep in your heart that God is not trying to restrain you from joy and pleasure, that he's redirecting you to a joy and pleasure that you cannot get outside of his design. You can't get it outside of his design. God designed your body for a purpose. And then number two, and lastly, God designed sex for a purpose. He designed sex for a purpose. We often believe the lie that the purpose of sex is just immediate gratification. Just, just temporary physical pleasure. A, a kind of momentary connection. And in verse 16, Paul Paul, in talking about the purpose of sex, he takes us all the way back to the beginning of human history when God created Adam and Eve. And he quotes from Genesis 2.24. And he says, the two will become one flesh. <clears throat> That's the design of sexual intimacy in a sexual relationship is the two will become one flesh. Now, obviously, one of God's purposes for sex is, is procreation. We, we know that. God's first command to Adam and Eve is have sex, be fruitful and multiply. Make a lot of babies and have a lot of fun doing it. That's my translation of the Hebrew. <laughs> that, that's, but, but sex isn't just about having kids. This one flesh thing is so profound. The two become one flesh. These, these two literally become a physical unit. The male and female bodies have been designed intentionally to complement each other. Please don't make me spell that out. They've been designed to complement each other like a violin and a bow. Designed to come together to create something that you could not create with them apart. It's God intentionally designed it that way. So there's this physical union that happens by design. But that physical union is designed to express and enhance a deeper union between a husband and a wife. Author Tim Keller says, sex is a way to donate yourself to someone so deeply that the two become a unity. Sex is meant to be a way for you to say to another person, listen to this, sex is meant to be a way for you to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you. He says, when you have sex with another person, by, in God's design, it's supposed to be in a husband and a wife. And every time we come together in physical intimacy, it is me saying to my wife through my body, I belong completely and exclusively to you. That I'm giving you not just my heart, but I'm giving you my body. I'm giving you everything about me. That this physical vulnerability that we're sharing with one another is supposed to express and enhance a deeper vulnerability that we have. That every part of who I am and every aspect of my life is vulnerable to you. My bank account is vulnerable to you. My fears and anxieties are vulnerable to you. My, my past history is vulnerable to you. Every, my future is vulnerable to you. That this act is designed to communicate I belong completely and exclusively to you. 
And so pleasure isn't the ultimate purpose. It's a great purpose, but not the ultimate purpose. The pleasure of sex literally serves the purpose of this deeper, intimate union between a husband and a wife. Literally, physiologically, there's hormones like dopamine and oxytocin, right, that go to work in your brain, and this is, this, uh, a psychologist and biologist study this thing, even a term called sex glue, right, where these hormones are designed not just to give you pleasure, but they are designed to bond you to your environment and to bond you, your emotions, to bond your psyche to the person that you're in this intimate relationship with. It's this beautiful, beautiful thing that God has designed, this intimate union between a husband and a wife. And our bodies even participate in and contribute to that intimate union. But the power of sexual intimacy is also what makes it so dangerous. Makes it so dangerous. That's what he says, verse 15 says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them? With a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You got to understand what God is saying here. God is saying, and you got to trust him by faith on this, he's saying that sexual sin has a unique impact on you. Sexual sin is not worse than all other sins, but it is unique. It's different. It impacts you in a deeper, more profound way than other sins because of its design. And part of that is because of what I just said, that the way God designed sex to work is it's literally designed to, to strengthen and reinforce the bond of a covenant commitment and intimacy between a husband and a wife. And so here's what you do. Here's what I did. Here's what I did for years from when I was a child all the way up to college when I indulged myself in pornography. This is what I did when I was in college and I pursued sexual relationships with women and took advantage and manipulated it. This is what I did. You, you, you do something in the sexual act that is designed to begin this bonding process. And then as that bond is supposed to be happening by God's design, you rip it apart. And then you come over here and you begin the bonding process and you rip it apart. And you come over here and you, you do it over and over again with every click of your computer and with every interaction and hookup, random hookup that you have. And listen, that has consequences. And some of us in the room, we know what those consequences are like. We know what those consequences are like. I think about my own marriage, and actually, I have this uh, thing in my car. It's the thing like a, like a, a, a holder for your phone, and it has a suction cup, and you put it on the window. And I remember it works perfectly, right, if it's sticking to what it's supposed to stick to. But I was washing my car one day, and I took it off, and it fell down, and the suction cup part fell on the carpet. Then I was finishing up, I had it on my lap, I got out of the car and it fell out of the car and it fell down on the gravel. And it kept, the suction cup kept falling and sticking to stuff it's not supposed to stick to. And here's what happens. When I now try to put it up, 
on the one, it doesn't stick like it's supposed to. Listen, God knows something that our culture won't tell you, and that is sexual sin, all forms of sexual sin. It has a damaging effect on you. It has a damaging effect specifically on God's design for your ability to form intimate bonds. I know that pain in my marriage, bringing all that history of pornography and how it shaped my expectations and my standards and distorted my sexual appetite, bringing that into my marriage and then trying to have this gentle, loving, God-honoring sexual intimacy with my wife and having to go through the process, the painful process of God retraining us. I know that, and some of you know that kind of pain. Some of you know that kind of pain, not because of what you've done, but because of what has been done to you. You know sex isn't just physical because that abuse that you went through didn't just impact you physically. You still deal with the deeper consequences today of somebody else's sin against you. It's because this thing called sex is a powerful thing. It's not just physical. It's not just physical. And so listen, God says, you got to trust me. How does this one flesh thing work? I don't really fully understand it, to be honest with you. But let's just all be honest. Like, you don't have to understand all the chemical processes of crystal meth. Just heed the warning. It will jack you up. (laughs) And God says, listen, there is something powerful and all-consuming that happens in sex. And it's by design. If it's happening in its proper context, it does what it's supposed to do. If it happens outside of that context, it does damage. And the real, real dangerous thing is you might not experience the consequences. Usually you don't experience it in the moment or even in this season and stage of life. You usually experience those consequences in another stage of life. Ask some people who've been living a little bit longer than you. God says, listen, sexual sin, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. I was, um, <laughs> one day, uh, there was a man living in New York City, and uh, we're getting ready to close. There was a man living in New York City. He lived in Harlem, actually, living in an apartment. He went to the emergency room, and uh, he had puncture wounds on him. And he told him he got uh, bit by uh, a pit bull. Well, meanwhile, uh, his neighbors started calling 911 because they were hearing weird noises in his, in his apartment. And so the police come to his apartment. They hear the weird noises too. So he didn't have a little peephole thing. So they drill a hole through his door. And the police officers, this is a true story, New York Times. They they look through the hole and they see a 500-pound Bengal tiger in his Harlem apartment. This is like a real photo. So the police repel off the side of the building to the window, open the window with a tranquilizer gun, not to kill him, but to put him to sleep, shoot the tiger, put him to sleep, come into his apartment, and they also find a three-foot-long alligator in his apartment. So this is what happened. He didn't get bit by a pit bull. He got bit by a tiger. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on. Why? Why would you keep a 500-pound tiger in your apartment for the same reason you keep sexual sin in your life. Because it wasn't 500 pounds when he first got it. When he got it, 
When he got the tiger, this is straight up New York Times. When he bought that tiger, he bought it as a baby. Black market, bought it as a baby. It was so cute. And, oh, look, at my boys come over. And I'm like, oh, I got a cute little tiger. That's kind of weird to me personally, if you ask me. Uh, but I got a little baby tiger. And every, it's, it's manageable. He can control it. It's cute. It's a pet. And here's what you got to understand. He didn't have a pet in his house. He had a predator. And the reality of the matter is, with sexual sin, it, it see, everything seems great. We can control it. It, feel, it feels so natural. It's sweet. I can, everything is good. My wife will never find out. It's just a couple of clicks. It's just one hookup on a business trip. It's just a couple of kind of casual relationships. I don't even know their name. We didn't even exchange phone numbers. No, no, no harm done. But God knows what we don't, that we invite this predator into our lives and into our hearts. And it will grow. And instead of us managing it, it will begin to manage us. God knows that better than we do. Because we have an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy us. Listen, don't play with sexual sin. God has a purpose for your body. It's a purpose to glorify him. And it's a purpose to satisfy you. And God has a purpose for sex. And you can trust him with that purpose. And it might mean you have to say, I'm not going to have sex, or I'm not going to have sex in this way, or I'm not going to have sex with this person. But please believe God by faith. He has the ability to satisfy you in ways that you cannot imagine. And there's some of you who are here, there's some of you who are here who you have sin in your life right now or you have sin in your past and you carry that shame and you carry that guilt and you carry those consequences like I did and like I do. And you might feel in here like, am I damaged goods? Like how could I ever be forgiven for what I did or what I allowed to be done to me? Like how, like... And you wonder, like, where do I even go from here? And let me just tell you, the gospel says there is hope. I know it from God's word. I know it from my life. There is hope. I love this verse, and I'm going to close with this one verse. Further up in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking about the sexually immoral and all these people who will not uh, inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what he says. He says, and that is what some of you, here's the key word, were. That's what some of you were. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God is in the business of giving new beginnings. And no matter what you've done, no matter what you are into right now, God knows it. And God says, listen, if you would just trust me that I have a design for your life, if you would turn from your sin and if you would trust that I forgive you through the blood of Jesus Christ, that I can resurrect your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, right now, today, I will wipe your slate clean. And it doesn't mean I wipe away all the consequences. It doesn't mean the process will be easy or immediate, but he promises that he will give you the strength to rebuild your life and retrain your appetites. He's done it for me. He can do it for you. Let me pray. Let me pray that God would do that. Father, we lift, we lift our hearts to you, God. For so many of us, our hearts have been deceived. And Lord, we need the truth of your word. And we lift our bodies to you. We lift our bodies to you, God.
we have violated in so many ways your purpose for our bodies. We have violated in so many ways your purpose for sex. We confess that to you. Some of us, Lord, we need to spend some time confessing that to you and confessing that to other brothers and sisters in Christ. But God, thank you that there is grace, that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And Lord, you promise that as we call out to you, as we call in the name of the Lord, we will be saved as we confess our sins to you. You are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so God, would you do that in this room? Would you redirect us? to joy and pleasure that can only be found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.